Welcome to Mocktails and Masterpieces with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthony Team Realty. Today's episode is a re-air from March 17, 2022, when ICO was presenting Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Welcome to another Mocktails and Masterpieces. I'm Matthew Kramer, Music Director of the ICO, and we've got a tremendous program coming up with your orchestra the uh, annual silent movie. And we've been doing this for, I think, almost 20 years now. And, and this is a significant departure for us. Uh, we'll be screening 1927 Fritz Long classic, really a pioneering film, Metropolis. And I'm delighted to be joined by Allison Hothcock, who's Associate Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Butler University, who teaches class in US film history. Allison, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's talk uh, about this is this is a great film to to talk about. My students um, always enjoy this film, getting the chance to see it because they recognize some of the legacy of it. So, you know, we, we use these words so often overuse them, iconic and groundbreaking and pioneering. But really, this is a movie that has had a significant impact on filmmakers and film history almost 100 years now. So let's start with that. Let's talk about what film uh, looked like in 1927 here in the United States and the impact of German expressionism, this, this uh, art being created uh, in Germany in the Weimar Republic, uh, film history in 1927. Yes, so uh, this is the silent era. Everything is still new. There is no standard um, in film. Lots of things are new. Um, the grammar of film is being written with each film that gets made. And during that time, what gets established as the Hollywood style or the American style of filmmaking becomes the standard globally. Um, that is the idea that film is objective, um, that it's just a medium of representation, that it that there's um, what you see is what you get, um, that the narrative is always linear. It moves from the beginning to the middle to the end. Um, and that it's the narrative that drives the film, not the structure or the visual elements. Those are invisible. German Expressionism changed everything. German Expressionism took the idea that film was objective and it threw it out the window. It took all of the things that American filmmaking was presenting as invisible, things like cuts and edits and um, sets and it made them a part of the storytelling. So it used the techniques of filmmaking to convey this inner turmoil of the characters and of the time by using things like deep shadows, um, exaggerated or distorted sets, um, off-balance camera angles, exaggerated images. And so all of a sudden, silent film is no longer objective. It's being, it's the external filmmaking techniques are being used to convey what's going on inside the heads of the characters. And this was something that had not been done in American film. This was uniquely German expressionism. And certainly um, it, it made its way to the United States when a variety of German expressionist directors moved to the United States um, in the 1930s. Um, but certainly it has had an impact on film undeniably and changed it at the time. 
and affecting so many other fields in the arts as well. If you think of Edvard Munch's The Scream, the famous painting, uh, Arnold Schoenberg, before he started writing 12-tone music, was writing ex uh, German Expressionist music as a reaction to Impressionism and Naturalism, uh, you know, an incredibly impactful art form, German Expressionism. And this film particularly, uh, can you take us through uh, the creation of this, this movie, 1927, and, and uh, you know, what this, this film uh, its significance has had uh, on films at that time, as you've already described the impact in Hollywood, but on future films. Sure, sure. So um, this film, it took a little over a year to shoot. It started shooting in 1925. It was released in 1927. It's often considered one of the grandparents of science fiction. So it is not the first science fiction, but it is certainly one of the grandparents of science fiction. Um, it's a futuristic dystopian love story, which is complicated by class. And of course, you have to remember in 1927, the, so the communist revolution in the Soviet Union, as it was known at the time, was only 10 years in the rearview mirror. So workers' rights are very much on the forefront of people's brains in Europe. And so this story being complicated by class about workers, um, Maria, the, the saintly figure to the workers, and um, Freder, the, the wealthy son um, of the city master, you know, it, this story reflects that time period and sort of the social issues that were present at the time. Um, the film was actually co-written by Long's second wife, um, Thea von Har Harbaugh. Please excuse my mangling of that. Um, at the time, critics admired its artistic beauty and the special effects, but they made fun of the fact that it was trite and naive and overly simplistic. And it also really received a lot of criticism for the um, implicit communist message that was part of it as well. Um, originally, the film ran for 153 minutes. Uh, it did so poorly at the box office at the time that it they cut out 20 minutes of it um, and released it uh, with the 1927 version, which is the version most of us have seen. There have later been attempts to restore those 30 minutes. They have had varying degrees of success, um, but nobody has seen the full 153 minutes in who knows how long. Um, during its making, the film went over budget and was considered a financial disaster for the film studio at the time, UAF. Um, the budget was originally um, Let's see, what was it? It was 1.5 million Reichsmarks. Um, it ended up coming in three and a half times over that. So it was a little over budget. It was it was considered very much a flop. Um, it, however, was consistent with other science fiction themes of that era. Industrialization was happening worldwide. Technology had exploded um, in part due to World War I as well as industrialization taking place. So there's all kinds of science fiction that comes before it that deals with technology, like A Trip to the Moon by uh, Georges Millet in 1902 or Frankenstein in uh, 1910 with Boris Karloff, um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So technology is very much a theme um, of this film and of other science fiction at the time. Um, and of course, the film then goes on to impact other films of the era, such as modern times. However, it 
uh, it goes on to impact film even through to today. So, for example, Alfred Hitchcock talked about how German Expressionism changed the way he thought about directing. Um, and so you can see a lot of the deep shadows and distorted sets in some of the early um, early Hitchcock films. And certainly even in his later films, you can see his playing with filmmaking techniques to tell the turmoil or to create the turmoil in the audience that the characters were experiencing. Um, other films more recently that people might have seen would be, of course, Ridley Scott's uh, Blade Runner in 1982 is sort of always a reference, um, considered a reference to um, Long's Metropolis. Um, 1998's Dark City, which was a small film that didn't get a lot of attention, but undeniably calls back to Metropolis. Um, for fans of the Star Wars universe, C-3PO will be a character that they would recognize um, as being influenced by Metropolis. George Lucas, Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, all directors today who cite Metropolis as one of their, um, and Germany and German Expressionism in general, as one of their influences. So the legacy of this film is long and, and far-reaching, and people who go to see films today are undeniably still being impacted by this film that they may have never seen. So. And the Hunger Games, I mean, I saw a clip side-by-side Film, film shots of uh, Metropolis with Hunger, almost, you know, identical uh, casting and, and shaping of, of scenes. Yes, absolutely. So there is there is undeniably the German expressionism and and in particular Metropolis is still being the the legacy of that is still with us. Yes, it is definitely a seminal film. You touched earlier on um, the, you know, the the premiere of this work, and almost instantly, uh, you know, the struggle that this film had to um, to to maintain its shape. Basically, it was it cut, it cut down. Uh, 1927 was also the year that the Jazz Singer was premiered, uh, which is the first talking movie, a uh, first movie with a synchronized soundtrack, and that was obviously going to have huge ramifications for filmmaking and for scores. Uh, as we're talking about music here, uh, particularly, but um, so you know, with this this film and it's in many different forms, um, you know, what what were some of the reasons you've already alluded to why this film was chopped down, why it was continued to be edited, why it struggled to find its uh, you know its full uh, runtime here with scenes and, and missing footage as they as I understand they, they discovered in Argentina, and we will for audiences be playing uh, the full reconstructed score from 1910. Uh, which was premiered, so incorporating some of this footage, but it wasn't just that you know he wanted to shorten the movie. There were other reasons why this film was cut down. Uh, yes, this was uh, my understanding is is this was largely the choice of the studio that they were trying to ensure that they could get an audience, keep an audience, recoup their losses, um, and you know they probably of course we have we don't know this but there were probably some more of the um communist themes cut out themes that would have been deemed controversial perhaps cut back or out a little bit more so the the director um 
once he let go of it, once it finally made its premiere, he didn't have a lot of control over it. Um, although it does go on to be considered Metropolis and um, his, uh, his other film, M, in 1931, are two of the films for which he is most recognized. His career is long. Um, he moves to the United States in the 30s. His career spans into the 1960s. But it really is these early German Expressionism films that garner him the attention. Um, but that attention sort of came retroactively when um, in the 1950s in France, there was a move to look at films from the past and look at the directors and focus on the director. It was, it was um, the emergence of auteur theory, which of course then drives um, the movement, the new wave French film in the 1960s and new Hollywood films in the 1970s in the United States. Um, so, you know, this this film did struggle to find an audience. It is later when a full generation of people have grown up on film that it starts to um, seep into the culture more significantly when people are like, oh, wait a minute, this film that people haven't seen in 30 years, this is worth looking at. And it is really, so while it had its impact at the time, it really um, is attributed, the, the reemergence of it is at least in part attributed to auteur theory, um, which swept the continent in the 1950s. Um, it, it affected advertising too, as I understand it. You have a segment. I'll let you cue this up from uh, from the eighties. Yes, absolutely. Um, so cue that up. Yes. So um, Apple's introduction of the Macintosh computer or MacBook, as we would call it today, but in 1984, they refer to it as Macintosh computers. Um, this commercial is a direct reference to. Um, excuse me, Long's uh, Metropolis, so. Uh. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. We have created for the first time in all history a garden of pure ideology where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Allison that was a fascinating discovery that I had no idea about. I was playing with Legos in the 1980s and had no idea that Metropolis had entered uh, American psyche uh, but certainly now taking a look at its impact and uh, science fiction films from uh, you know, really from the moment this movie was created an absolute impact. Uh, what, what do you think, uh, and I'll, I'll finish our segment with this, what do you think uh, a movie like this that's now almost 100 years old still has to say? We've talked about this cultural impact and its uh, influence on filmmakers, but what does a, a movie like this still have to teach us uh, 100 years later? Or what makes it still an important movie? Uh, well, I think 
the more we know about film history, the more we get out of the films we watch today, right? So um, when I watch Star Wars, I have a different layer of depth of understanding of C-3PO than, than people who perhaps haven't seen Metropolis. And so certainly we get, we are able to bring a richer understanding to our own films that we consume if we understand it. I also think we, um, dystopian class love stories are still valid and relevant today. Um, certainly at different times in history, we might, uh, disagree with that. But I think at this particular moment, I think we can see the idea, um, the questions related to class and how class impacts our daily lives and who we love and who we have access to. Um, I think certainly that still is a, a part of our lives today as well. So. Uh, Allison, I appreciate this conversation so much. And for you taking us uh, deeper into this, this film, this, uh, again, pioneering classic in science fiction and German expressionism as well. I'm going to share now a, a brief clip from Metropolis. This is a, a scene, uh, one of the more famous scenes of the movie early on when Freighter, that son of the, the city master, travels underground uh, to where the machines are, where the workers are slaving that keeps the city alive. And it's a very dramatic scene. And we'll come back and I'm going to talk a little bit about the score, which was uh, penned by Gottfried Huppertz. This is a scene from Metropolis.
that was a very powerful scene from Fritz Lang's 1927 film, Metropolis, which we're discussing here. Now time to talk a little bit about the musical score that we're gonna be presenting uh, along with this. So first of all, um, you know, this is a length that the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra has not had to deal with before. Most of the silent films that we've accompanied have been about 90 minutes max. So this film is uh, two and a half hours of continuous playing. And I wanna show you what that looks like. Here is the original score that accompanied Fritz Long's premiere, 1927. It is 600 pages long, 5,000 bars. It weighs 25 pounds. Um, it's just nonstop playing. When, uh, we, when orchestras uh, accompany films of John Williams, uh, scores by Hans Zimmer, uh, it is not continuous playing. There are segments at the beginning and at the end, perhaps in the middle, where there are stretches of five minutes of music, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of places in, in current films where there is no music at all. So to accompany a silent movie is just to realize that the musical score has a huge impact on not only the narrative, the plot, the drama, uh, it's, it's really uh, an integral part of the storytelling. And it is a, a real marathon for the musicians. What's interesting for uh, this, this work in particular is that this score created by Gottfried Huppertz was only heard at the original premiere. Uh, since it was not synchronized and recorded into the film, uh, there was an orchestra, a large symphony orchestra that was accompanying uh, this production. But as we've already alluded to, uh, the dramatic cuts that were made to this, uh, future showings utilized many numerous uh, additional scores that were created. I mean, there are modern day uh, showings of this using music of Freddie Mercury and other uh, rock uh, musicians. So the, to, to come back and actually play the original score by Hooper's um, is, as it was recorded in 2010, uh, is really a very special treat. This, this is a composer who's not uh, obviously a household name, but he did work in, in Germany uh, along with Fritz Long and a number of other projects. And you can hear very clearly the influence of uh, Richard Wagner and Richard Strauss uh, in, in this musical score here. Um, about this orchestration in 2010, uh, this is an arrangement of the original score by a musician named Frank Strobel who reduced it to what is considered a salon size orchestra. Um, as I've often talked about when we premiere our, uh, our, our showings uh, uh, of silent movies, that uh, depending on the size of a, a movie theater a hundred years ago, uh, would really impact a music director's ability to what, uh, what instruments could be showcased. In large cities with large uh, movie theaters, uh, a full-size symphony orchestra could have been fielded, but in much smaller communities, they needed smaller instruments. In some cases, just an organ would accompany silent films. Uh, Frank Strobel reduced this to a, a musical force of about 30 musicians and included an instrument called the harmonium, which is like a parlor organ, to help fill out some of the instruments that needed to be left off. Nonetheless, you get an incredible representation of the original film score that would have accompanied Fritz Long's film almost 100 years ago. So we hope that you are able to come out uh, and experience this classic live. Very rarely is this film screened with live orchestral accompaniment, and even though you can find the recreation uh, of this film online and on Blu-ray, uh, to be able to hear this performed with the film score live will be certainly a very special treat. Uh, so that's the ICO's silent film, Metropolis from 1927, coming up, uh, a groundbreaking film, an amazing film score by Gottfried Hooper's. Thanks for joining us. Then again, thanks for, uh, to Allison for joining me discussing this film. We'll see you at our next Mocktails, the next ICO concert. Thanks, everyone.